My good, 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 good friend and business partner, which I guess is, should I say a good, 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 good business partner? I don't know. <laughs> I'm just curious what you're after. <laughs> Mr. Jason Johnston Yellen. How are you? I'm, I'm good. Apparently you're looking for a kidney. <laughs> I've never been buttered up like that before. I figured you were going to ask me for some organ. Oh, right. Yeah, not the organ you think, so calm down. Always the... <laughs> How are you? I'm good. Good. Yeah. I'm excited for today's episode, I can tell you that much. I yeah. think we've got something a little different for our listeners. I think um, I think they're going to enjoy themselves. I'm glad you're excited about it, because to be very honest, I think this is perhaps the most selfish idea I've had. When it comes to this podcast, we do know that you you take care of number one. <laughs> Sometimes number two, but it's not you know. <laughs> it does. I always make you think of Austin Powers. He's who does number two work for? Uh, <laughs> which is an awfully good scene. Um, so yeah, it is. It's it's you know we we've been saying it to people about our New York 2017 label that we got a little self indulgent mm -hmm. and we we put ourselves on that label yeah. really as a bit of fun you right. know and I know yeah. that from the outside it can look a little self indulgent which it is uh, but we're having a bit of fun and I think that comes through in today's interview with Garth Ennis where yeah it's yeah it's self indulgent you get to speak to a, a guy that we've both been fans of for the better part of two decades almost three decades yeah that's a long time to be a fan oh, of something no i know i know yeah that's it's it's really interesting so so those of you that maybe do not know the name garth ennis shame on you first and foremost i think it's perfectly okay <laughs> i think well, garth would say it's perfectly okay as well yeah maybe um he is a uh, a writer for he's a graphic novelist and you may know some of his work has become incredibly popular now and because it's turned into a TV show on, on AMC called Preacher. What's what's that? You, you give me the, funny looks. The ground screw just showed up. Oh, is uh, Cecil there? <laughs> he is. I think he's getting the last cut in for the end of the season. Oh, is he getting ready? Is he polishing up his shovels? He is. There's, there's no snow to shovel right now, so I think he's going to cut the grass, whether it needs it or not. For one last time, <laughs> I'll say that two weeks from now they'll be back cutting again. Oh, that could be. Yeah, that's Cecil. He's a he's a naughty one. <laughs> so Garth Ennis, um, a lot of people now know the name because there's a TV show Preacher, which is based on the graphic novel that he started writing back in 1995. Uh, but he's done other work as well. Uh, some of his own works have been Crossed and The Boys. And uh, Dog Welder, which is a very esoteric character. And he's, and he's done a lot of work for Punisher and Wolverine and Thor and, you know, you name it, a lot of, a lot of stuff. I would want to inject at this point that 
if you're a listener who's thinking, I'm not a comics book person, I, I really, I'm not going to spend an hour and a half of my time listening to this. I would say hang around. I think, Joshua, you did a fantastic job of, of connecting the world of whiskey with the world of comic books. Right. Thank you. And I thought Garth was very interested in that crossover as well. And one of my takeaways from listening to the interview is that even if one isn't into comic books, and I admit I'm not as into them as you are, mm-hmm. um, but I but I like them and I've enjoyed them you know over the years. The way Garth talks about the creative process, yes, yeah, I thought it was just really fascinating, and and I thought there were levels to your conversation with him that aren't just comic book nerd conversations. Well, during the entire time we spoke, I, I really, I tried to remain cognizant of the fact that we are a whiskey industry slash insiders podcast. And mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. always wanted to keep the conversation grounded in that, that thought and then dabble in the world of comics. And And you're right. I think and I appreciate your words about the interview that I had with him, but I think he did a, a little bit of heavy lifting himself. Agreed. Right? Yeah. Yep. So uh, he was just a great interview. And, you know, I got into him back in 1993. I picked up a copy of, of Hellblazer, uh, which they made a movie, Constantine, uh, with Keanu Reeves. And uh, he had some interesting things to say about that movie. And, and then there was a <laughs> TV show about it as well. He did, yeah. Um, I, I would have started reading him around the same time when he was working on Judge Dredd in 2000 AD. Oh, yeah. Uh, which yeah. a very, very popular yeah. um, comic book, which which brings together a number of, of strips into it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I was a big 2000 AD fan. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, we probably got into him around the same time. You know, if I ever had any doubt that, geez, will this interview work for a whiskey podcast – that doubt was diminished, alleviated, uh, thrown away because we got a, a message from Balancer on Instagram. Oh, I yes. I posted a picture of the setup and yep. he says, Dear Lord, I didn't think this <laughs> podcast could get any better, but soon talking whiskey and comics, absolutely cannot wait for this episode. So thank you, Balancer. Should we get to it? Yeah, let's get to it. Um, I hope you guys enjoy. This is the first celebrity interview that we've done, and hopefully the first of many. And, and we'll be looking to to dabble into other areas of expertise that have some sort of connection to whiskey, whether it's actors or comedians or what have you. And we'll see if, if we'll see if what I just said comes true. <laughs> And no matter how tenuous that connection, if we can selfishly talk to them, we shall. Yes. Over to you and Garth. <laughs> Cheers, buddy. Cheers. Mm, this is already smelling very nice. Yeah, so this is so this is the first and only Irish whiskey that we've bottled. It's uh, 13 years from the Cooley Distillery. Mm-hmm. It's single malt uh, and double distilled like the Scots do it. Right. It is 54.8% alcohol. Gosh, so, it's quite lovely. I'm starting you off right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I met you through Amanda. Yes, of course. Schuster, Our good pal, friend. Amanda. How did you, how did you guys meet? Uh, I met Amanda through John Hedigan, of course. 
Um, he was working in a bar called the Pencil Factory right. uh, over in Greenpoint, where I lived briefly mm-hmm. before I moved to Manhattan. And um, yeah, I would have. That's that's where I would have would have met Amanda yeah. around about the same time. When uh, my wife and I made our move from the UK to the US permanent mm. uh, and we settled over here, uh, they hit it off. And uh, yeah, we've all been friends ever since, actually. Okay. Yeah. That's very cool. And that's, what was that, 2003 or something like that I met Amanda? Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was funny. I, this, was, this must have been two years ago now or just shy of two years, somewhere around there. And I'm... You know, just going through Facebook and, and reading Amanda's post, you know, mm-hmm. congratulating her good friend Garth and how his, you know, his his little comic, which I never thought was a little comic, but that's the way she said, you know, being very um, humble, you know, has been picked up and has been mm-hmm. turned into a TV show and everything like that. And and so I think many people may may not have caught that immediately, but I freaked out a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I messaged her and and uh yeah so she told me you guys were friends and then mm-hmm. and then it was then where I said you have to some way shape or form <laughs> get this man to whiskey jubilee which she subsequently did which she subsequently yeah. did yeah which was a great uh, a great night out yeah what i remember of it uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> was that your first time ever at uh, a whiskey a whiskey event or festival yes uh i've been to a couple of beer festivals Mm. not as many as people might expect but that's the first time i've been to a a whiskey event okay yeah did you have a a love for whiskey at all or just a passing hey i like this stuff um bum bum well let's see i know what i like Mm. but i'm no expert Mm. once you stray outside the half a dozen things I'm really fond of in each category, my knowledge falls away quite markedly. Um, For instance, uh, I'm a big fan of Black Maple Hill and Poppy Van Winkle. They would would be my two favorites. Okay. The the old Black Maple Hill with the tall bottle or the... There's a newer squat bottle There is. There is. And of course, that's all you can get now. The the older bottle disappeared some years ago and i think the 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 new version which um uh i believe they use a different yeah i think i think the original distillery the old stuff and i could be wrong and people listening please correct me Mm. um but i think the old juice was stitzel weller okay stuff which that distillery is closed right right so they had to go to the yeah 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 uh, so those are those two are probably my favorites. Beyond that, uh, there are things I like very much, um, but specialist knowledge, no, okay. no, not okay. at all. Okay. Well, we're yeah. we're not going to get too geeky sure. about whiskey. <laughs> you know, one of the one of the things that Jason and I talked about when we when we thought about this idea to interview you now. Firstly, I wanted to interview you selfishly because I just wanted to hang out and talk, <laughs> right? But we run a very specialist whiskey podcast. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is for whiskey dorks and right. people who know the full ins and outs. And and so we were trying to think of the connection. What is the connection between whiskey and comics or what we do 
and what you do. Mm. And and I had a thought. And hopefully you'll you'll follow me down this path and, and hopefully it'll make sense. You know, we run an independent bottling company, meaning that we do not produce anything ourselves. Mm-hmm. We purchase from distilleries or from brokers that have purchased from distilleries. And we release the whiskeys that we fall in love with, sort mm-hmm. of. You know, th- this is our version of Lafroy. This is our version of right. Buffalo Trace or what have you. Mm-hmm. And I instantly thought of you as as a comic writer or a graphic novel writer who you've you've written for for Marvel, for DC, mm-hmm. for Avatar, for for a bunch, and many of the of the characters were not yours. Right. So you get to do Thor your way. You get to do Punisher your way and i think you even did a lobo did you do lobo uh i had lobo guest star in um in a book called hitman which i was doing for dc comics hitman um myself and the artist john mccray created so although we don't own it yeah dc own it um it it did feature our own character and supporting yeah. cast, and we had Lobo pop up in that, and we uh-huh. did our best to to drag him through the mud for 40 or 50 pages because he was <laughs> never a character I really took to. There was something horribly self-consciously huh. uh, chaotic about that book. Someone yeah. described it as someone's dad showing off by talking to his kid about heavy metal and they weren't far That's wrong great. wow okay I mean, when he was first i think when when lobo first hit it big the character worked because it was a parody mm. it wasn't supposed to be taken seriously yeah yeah but the more you saw of him and the more you heard his catchphrases and his corny dialogue and the mm. more you saw him interact with other characters the more you could see they were trying to push him as a going concern when really he was just an excellent joke well told um that to me is when he got tiresome and when the opportunity arose to give him the hitman treatment which we did to a few characters just thinking about it uh i I leapt at the chance did you yeah so so you got to be that with us as independent bottlers getting to show someone a side of a distillery they may have never seen before, you get to show people a side of characters or a storyline or a universe that they perhaps never have seen before. That is an interesting way of putting it. I mean, when I consider the company-owned characters that I've written, the ones that spring to mind are, are John Constantine. Yeah, yeah. And The Punisher and Nick Fury. Yeah. And the nice thing about each of those is that with a couple of tweaks, not too much, it's possible to write those characters pretty much in the real world. Hmm. Uh, if you ignore the superhero backdrop, the yeah. universe that gave rise yeah, to those characters, sure, sure, sure. you can write, say, for instance, Nick Fury as uh, instead of some sort of semi-super secret agent, a CIA officer mm. who's been in since the end of World War Two when the OSS yeah. became the CIA and yeah. participated in pretty much every disastrous Cold War black op since. Right. Um, 
and that seemed to work. It seemed to go over well enough for me to do more of it. Um, uh, it's not the Nick Fury most people know, mm. but then I'm not really interested in the Nick Fury most people mm. know. For me, I look at a character like that and I see a way in, uh, a way for me to talk about the things I'm interested in. Yeah. And what would that be? I mean, for, I think you touched on it a little bit. Mm. You know, getting back to World War Two and yeah. OSS turning into CIA. Yeah. You know, you're bringing some history in there. Yeah. Um, that that is something I'm particularly interested in. When when you look at uh, the OSS in the closing days of World War Two, as the the stage is being set for the Cold War, you see America taking her place in the world. Um, the old empires are exhausted. Uh, the fascist states are defeated. Communism is deemed to be the new enemy, mm-hmm. and America steps forth to to, to oppose sure. uh, communism, socialism, and so on. Um, the CIA take their place at the head of that battle. There is a sense of perhaps callow youth attempting to direct a battle that it doesn't really understand, it never yeah. fully understands its, its enemy, its enemy's limitations, its own limitations. And what follows is about 45, 50 years of ill-thought-out operations that, mm-hmm. um, that e- either feel badly like mm-hmm. the Bay of Pigs and the general policies towards Cuba, or spectacularly, like Vietnam. Right. Um, right. There, there is a possibility that, in fact, with a lot less effort and a lot less bloodshed, America could, have, could, have, could simply have sat back and let her enemies lose anyway. Mm. Russia attempting its own empire building mm-hmm. uh, ultimately fell apart in the attempt. It was, uh, I think, the... Um, adventurism in Afghanistan that mm. eventually came to, to undermine yeah. Soviet power, Soviet economy, and uh, uh, left that, that nation in no real state to be a superpower. For timing purposes, First Blood comes to mind. First Blood, the Stallone movie? Yeah, right? Because yeah. wasn't that, weren't we fighting on the side? Well, Obviously. First Blood is a bit of a favorite of mine. I mean, I, I see that as, as one of those stories of, of the detritus mm. of war, where after Vietnam, men like that are thrown on the scrap heap and expected to somehow thrive in civilian society. I yeah. think it's very important to uh, separate First Blood from the Rambo movies that succeeded it. Without a doubt. Um, um, but, but it was that first one where he was fighting alongside the Afghanis, or was that the subsequent no, that's, Rambo? No, that's much later. Is it? Oh, first okay. Blood is okay. the one where he shows up walking along the little road somewhere along the uh, s- somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, 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 yeah. And okay. he runs afoul of the local sheriff, and pretty soon there's a manhunt. Okay. And he's he's abs- you know he. he Stallone plays this character who's absolutely lethal but has no ability to function in society yeah. whatsoever. It is, as I say, very different to what followed it. Wow. Yeah. Which, maybe calling back to what you were saying about Lobo, Rambo seemed to be a joke on First Blood. It became a parody of that original film. It, uh, I don't way. think it was intended to be, Yeah. but I think by about the third movie, it had become that. 
yeah. whether they intended it or yeah. not. Yeah. Um, the, the second one, Rambo, it's a long time since I've seen it, but it is a very 80s film. It's a Reagan-era film, America regaining its confidence. Yeah. Um, you, uh, you see this, this business about why weren't we allowed to win and mm-hmm. so on. Mm-hmm. Um, Vietnam is being or the negative side of Vietnam is being expunged from the national consciousness. Mm-hmm. And it's not just films like Rambo. I mean, if, if you look at science fiction, if you compare the utter dystopia of something like Alien to its own sequel, yeah, where sure. uh, our heroine has a bit of a rough time, but has enough firepower to get away with mm-hmm. uh, her new boyfriend, her surrogate daughter, her pet robot, right, and her own skin intact. Right. Um, something's changed in filmmaking and, and that all that 70s doubt huh. uh, and worry is being expunged. Wow, I, I, ne- I never even thought of it that way. When we talk alien, these are some of my favorite. Mm. You know, those are my f- some of my favorite movies. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't even thought what the attitude was in the country and how that played upon... Ridley Scott as he's making this movie mm-hmm. and and then part two which the, the hopeful 80s that's so interesting hadn't yeah. even well remember that James Cameron not only writes and directs Aliens but he yeah. also wrote Rambo oh he wrote Rambo he oh, wrote okay. the second Rambo picture was it so Ridley Scott after Alien mm-hmm. let it go and James Cameron took over that's right yeah okay yeah do you Maybe you know, maybe you don't know this, because I, I, so I can dig into whiskey and get into the nerdy stuff there, right? right? You're you, you're you're on a different level with some of this other stuff, and we're getting a little tangential on uh, on aliens. But just out of curiosity, do you know if Ridley Scott had the opportunity to make Aliens, and and he wasn't signed on as the director by whoever owned? Uh, I honestly don't know. Yeah. I believe he was interested. In the idea, and his interest eventually, many years later, led to Prometheus. Oh, yeah. I think that's it, because he always wanted to answer the questions of where the derelict ship came from and where its fossilized pilot had come from and what what the function of it was and why the hold was full of eggs. Um, But I don't know that he pursued it at the time with any great energy. That's the kind of thing, the kind of... um, uh, the, the industry scuttlebutt that I yeah. don't know as much about when it comes to something okay. like Alien, yeah. uh, which is a film I love and can spend hours talking about. It's more, it's more what I think about it and the meaning I impose on what I've seen, uh, okay. and how the sequels live up to it or don't that I find interesting. Okay. Yeah. So with with writing in mind, just to get back to the the initial thought, how far? When you're writing mm-hmm. for Punisher, mm-hmm. which I know you did, you did many years with Punisher, yeah. but uh, or you, you did some Wolverine, you've done Thor, you've done a bunch of things. How far can you? Do you feel you can comfortably take a character, or you, or that character within the universe, until you you break the idea of him or her? Do you know what I mean? I know what you mean. It's not something that really concerns me. I tend to go where I want and and uh, let uh, let someone else tell me what I can and can't do. Um, if you're talking about, for instance, 
Wolverine. I wrote Wolverine for a couple of issues, uh, guest starring in The Punisher. Oh, right. Um, as I did with, say, Lobo or Green Lantern and Hitman, you know, a couple of issues, that was yeah. it. Um, and I can go, well, I have a fair sense of how far I can go, how far they let me go. Um, generally, further than, than um, I might initially have thought, you know, I can push my luck. I, again, it's a question of dragging these characters through the dirt. I don't have a great deal of time for them, so... I'm not going to be very reverential. I wrote Wolverine as a sort of corny dialogue spouting Yosemite Sam maniac who was ultimately <laughs> run over by a steamroller. Yeah. Um, I blew his face off with a shotgun so that he talked like a ventriloquist <laughs> dummy, got love gear, all that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's fun, but I have really limited interest in doing it. Now, on the other hand, if you take something like The Punisher which, like Nick Fury, can be written almost as a real-world character. Mm. Well, that allows you enormous scope. Um, I'd written the character for a few years uh, when uh, I was given the opportunity to write a new mature reader's no-holds-barred version uh, for what Marvel called their Max line. Oh, yeah. Where really... You, you don't have to worry about any kind of restriction. Uh, certainly, I encountered very few. And largely because I'd been thinking a lot about it, I wanted to write something as a response to 9-11. Not right. so much to deal with the specifics of the attacks yeah. um, or even what followed them, but to look at the kind of world our world mm. in which things like that could happen what spawned uh, that particular day and the events that, that followed after it um, and the Punisher gave me a good opportunity to do that because with, with a book like that, with a book about a vigilante who essentially makes war on crime you can move from a simple Frank Castle versus the mob story mm -hmm. to look at terrorism at insurgency uh, the specifics of something like Afghanistan, mm. uh, at corruption in the U.S. military, at unfortunate ties uh, between the U.S. government and certain foreign governments. Right. Um, this is something that um, these and other things, uh, such as, well, for instance, again, human trafficking, um, was was something I got a good deal of material out of. Um, this is some, these are things you can look at in a book like that where you don't have to worry about the trappings of a superhero universe mm. where it's as simple as a man with uh, a basement full of guns and a computer and a plan right. and what right. he does and who he encounters and what the world he moves through is like. Huh. Okay. Cheers, by the way. Yeah, cheers. Yeah. What's this one? So this one is... Yeah. Chin chin. Mm. This one is uh, from the Glen Murray Distillery. Uh huh. So 12 years old. The whiskey spent its first six years in uh, in the next bourbon cask, mm. and then the final well six spent. years. Yeah, right. And then the final six years in a Madeira cask. Oh, right. And and this was this was one of the this is and so 
I told you every every whiskey I brought here I brought for a specific reason. Mm-hmm. So, and it actually ties into what we're talking about now, where where I'm wondering how far you can take a character or drag them through the mud, mm-hmm. um, which I know you like to do, especially with the the superhero types. Mm-hmm. Uh, with when we have the opportunity to bottle a whiskey, obviously we always want to bottle good whiskey, right? And sometimes, like the Cooley, we we bottled that because it is a shining example of what that distillery does. It's you know you're seeing that distillery, what we feel is is in its best light. Mm-hmm. With the Glen Murray, they don't have a standard release that is matured like this. It's totally different. Mm-hmm. And this was just some experimental stuff that they had in their warehouse, and they had no plans at all for it. And our thought was, well, let's let's release this. And obviously we released it because it tastes good. It was really different, but it also held on to something that is very core to Glen Murray which is that rich, oily mouthfeel. Mm-hmm. Like if, we, if we found a cask of Glen Murray that was thin and hot, and we wouldn't want to bottle that because we say that's not what Glen Murray is like, right? And so this is offering up some you know, heavier fruit kind of qualities from the Madeira, mm-hmm. but that ex-bourbon stuff coming through, just you know, some, some nice lighter qualities. There's a little vanilla in there. There's a little oaky spice to it. And so it's our opportunity to say, you know, we're, we're going to tell you about Glen Murray in a different way. Mm-hmm. So we're really excited about this one. Yeah, and rightly so. That's very nice indeed. Cheers. Yeah. The other two whiskeys will be bourbon. So mm. I remembered, well, no, I take that back. One is a bourbon. Mm-hmm. And then this other one is a real funky monkey. And we'll go into why it's a funky monkey. Um, but I, I do remember that you liked American whiskeys, so I, I wanted much. to be sure to. Yeah. So what is it about American whiskeys that you prefer over others? I think um, I think I was lucky enough to start uh, right at that point when interesting things were coming along, coming to the fore. I remember when Knob Creek first made an appearance. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I still drink their why, why rye, yeah, uh, uh, quite a quite a bit. Um, I think it's something about the sweetness, the mm-hmm. smokiness. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you watch the show Justified. I don't. No, uh, that's a that, that was a bit of a favorite of mine when it was on. Um, the lead character came out with. Uh, Probably the best description of bourbon I've ever heard after he tried it. He said, uh, um, he said, well, don't that just heat it up and cool it down at the same time? <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was great. Actually, that's a big whiskey show. Is they, it? Yeah, they mention a lot of good stuff in that. Yeah. I totally missed out on it. Yeah, and it's a good show generally. Is it? Yeah. That came out... That came out i want to say maybe seven years mm-hmm. ago mm-hmm. yeah so that was me in the thick of having a four-year-old and two-year-old right. and right generally no time to it's worth revisiting yeah. um you watch the first six episodes and it feels like any other cop show but set yeah. in kentucky and then it seemed to me that halfway through 
the first season, someone had been to see Winter's Bone, and mm. all of a sudden the show was about uh, grim goings on in the uh, mm. the backwoods and the hills of Kentucky and uh, opioid addiction and. Right. Um, communities being destroyed and going under and having to turn to crime to survive yeah. and uh, age-old feuds working their way back down out of the mountains into the public eye mm-hmm. um, and the rest of the show went on in that vein kind of like a, a sort of modern western okay tremendous stuff so it sounds like a lot of your interests deal with American history yeah Correct me if I'm wrong. Rather than your own Irish history, though, though I think that there's some religious stuff going on for sure. Uh, I would say they sort of sit comfortably alongside one oh, another. They do. Okay. Yeah, I find okay. both very interesting. Okay. Um, and also British history in general. Yeah. Um, but most my my interest tends to start with the Second World War and then radiate outwards. Mm. Uh, back and forwards, really, in what, time. What brought you to that? What what captures you? Well, it was the comics I read as a kid. Right. Um, in in my particular part of Northern Ireland, we had very poor distribution of American comics. We did get them. Um, my friend John McRae, who who I've done a lot of work with, he was able to amass quite a good collection of Marvel and DC comics, but. I saw them very rarely, and because of the British stuff I was reading, yeah, yeah. Uh, a sci-fi title called 2000 AD, which featured Judge Dredd, oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, among other similar characters, uh, and a war comic called Battle, which okay. featured characters, large, characters and stories largely set in the Second World War. Um, that, I think, sparked an interest in military history. I think it may have been because I read the stories and then I found out that, very broadly speaking, they were based in reality Mm. in a way that most comic stories are not. Okay. Um, Reading a story, my favorite was was one called Charlie's War, which was about a, a, a young... Uh, English lad who joins the British Army just in time for the Battle of the Somme in 1916, which was the, uh, for the British, anyway, the worst day of the First World War. Wasn't there a movie, Charlie's War? Uh, but I don't think it had there to do There may be, with, but it's yeah, got nothing it's, to do okay, with this. Okay, yeah, okay. Um, reading about that, which was a particularly well done, e- extremely striking and vivid piece of storytelling, um, and then learning that in actual fact these things had happened, that men mm. had done these things, yeah, yeah. that struck home with me in a way that fantasy of any kind, of, whether it be science fiction or superheroes, just didn't. Mm. So much as I enjoyed um, the science fiction stories I was reading in 2000 AD, they didn't stay with me. They haven't stayed with me in the oh, way yeah. that the war stories I read in battle right. did. Right, okay. Oh, interesting. What the one American comic that I did see reg- reasonably regularly as a kid was Mad. Oh yeah. Because my dad uh, spent a bit of time in the states, and he would bring back the digests, oh, the paperback great. digests, yeah. and I would see all that fantastic artwork. 
uh, by people like Jack Davis yes, um, so and John Severin. Yeah. Uh, I actually had the particular pleasure of working with John Severin about Did 10 you? years ago. It must have been, must have been one of the last stories that he illustrated. Oh, wow. But that was a particular treat just because, of course, I'd read his stuff as a kid yeah. in Mad and loved it. Uh. I used to go to, uh, this was back in my high school days, Every weekend, my friend Matt and I we would come to New York. This is high school after high school. I was into punk and hardcore bands, and both of us had turned Hare Krishna for a while. Oh, right, okay. So we'd come and we'd go. Yeah, it's a long story. It's interestingly enough, Hare Krishna played a huge part in punk and hardcore in the 90s. Really? Like a mat. Because in punk and hardcore, especially hardcore, in the U.S., there was this straight-edge movement. Oh, yeah. Those ideas of, you know, no drugs, no alcohol, you know, and in some cases, for some people, no sex, mm-hmm. was, you know, three, you know, key points to mm-hmm. Hare Krishna. Just add in a bunch of blue-skinned, eight-armed gods, and you're ready to of go. Of course, yeah. Right? So, so we would come to New York, and we would hang out at the temple, and we'd just go around, whatever. But we started visiting Mad Magazine every week. And it was oh, on yeah. 666 Lexington, 666 Broadway. I remember 6th uh, Avenue, I think. Could be. Or maybe 6th Avenue because, uh, because that was where DC Comics was as well. Was it? Yeah. Oh, jeez. That was before my time. Okay. But okay. yeah, it was in that neck of the woods. Yeah. But it was the same building. Yeah. Yeah. So so we go up there. I forget the floor. Let's say it's in the 20s. Um, and this one time that we go up, you know, each time we, you know, we're hoping to run into some of the artists, some of the writers, mm-hmm. and, you know, whoever, just to freak out and geek out with them. And and this one day we go up and both of us, you know, we have the Hare Krishna haircut. We have the, the thing coming out the back of your head, you know, the piece of hair mm-hmm. that they have. And there was a guy, forget his name, and he says, you guys have been here a few times. Yeah, you know, we're, we just love checking it out because they would welcome visitors all yeah. the time. And he said, if you'd like, Bill Gaines is around. Do you want to speak with him? So we got to hang out with Bill oh, Gaines for like <clears throat> 20, 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I've got to find it because he, he signed a, uh, a comic that I had. But as we were leaving... And this was, so speaking of things you look back, you know, you wish you kept comic books or you wish someone didn't throw out comic books that you, that you had. There's some things that I look back at and I say, I wish I'd made a better decision because the guy who introduced us to Bill Gaines as we were leaving said, I love your hair. The next episode of Mad, uh-huh. um, <laughs> Alfred E. Newman's going to have a crazy haircut I want to take a picture of you guys and we'll include you in the front because, you know, with all the letters and everything like that. And, you know, this was the very late 80s, very Mm -hmm. early 90s. These things didn't exist and they didn't have a phone or I'm sorry, they didn't have a camera Uh, in the office and they looked around. No one had one. So they said, go home, take a picture, send it in or bring it back. We know you guys are going to be coming back anyway. And we never did. Yeah. Very sad. Roads not taken. Roads not taken, indeed. So I had a, a couple of questions. Uh, just 
on Punisher really quickly. Sure. So, I, an old, I wouldn't call him an old friend of mine because we never got along. But we're friends on Facebook and we've always had the same interests. Comic books, Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. And he had posted something about Punisher and said, I don't get why anybody likes him. The man is nothing but a villain. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, and I think, too, to the Netflix, you know, uh, Punisher was in, in Daredevil for a little while. Now he's got his, he's going to have his own series, which I'm very excited for. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm just curious if you've heard that before and what your take is on is on that what your comeback is on that you know frank castle is a criminal is is a villain well strictly speaking he is a criminal he's a vigilante well, yes, he, yes, he yes, acts yes. outside the law and kills people um there's no doubt about it um it depends how you look at it if you examine it from the perspective of a superhero universe where brightly colored super powered characters um who exist only to do good, uh, fight slightly less brightly colored characters with superpowers who exist only to do evil. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, You have the Punisher thrown into that particular mix, and yes, he's certainly going to muddy the waters. I have no interest in that kind of universe. except to, as we were saying, occasionally visit it to pour a little scorn on it. Yeah. I'm interested, again, in a book, a character that allow me to look at the world I know, the world we live in, mm. uh, with its politics and its history. And Frank Castle is absolutely perfect for that. Yeah. I can't do that with Spider-Man, the Hulk, Superman, Green Lantern. You may as well write about fairies and unicorns. Yeah. If you want fantasy, yes, Frank Castle's a bad fit. But if you want something a bit nearer the real world, if you want to examine our world, our history, then Frank Castle is just the ticket. Morally, Mm. uh, no, he doesn't hit very many high notes. He's... He's very much the guy that you want to see appear when you're in trouble, but objectively, when you take a step back, no, you don't want someone like that out there. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. But on the other hand, look at 99% of other comic book characters, and it's irrelevant what you want because you're never going to see anyone remotely like them. Yeah. Or the world they live in. So Frank Castle just, you know, he's an interesting character because he doesn't fit in the greater... Marvel Universe. No. I mean, that's where he came from. That's where they constantly use him. I just don't write him there myself because I don't find there to be much of value uh, to be gleaned from doing so. Um, My first three years, maybe more, on The Punisher were set in the Marvel Universe. And looking at it now, I can see myself straining against the leash. Yeah. As it were, that was why the, the Max book, um, the, the second series of The Punisher I did was a godsend. Yeah. Because I was able to simply throw aside all of the, the, all of the window dressing and right, right, get right. down to what mattered. Right. 
Would you say that some of your stories are... Do you need more whiskey? Uh, actually, still working on this oh, one. Still working. Okay. Yeah. Would you say that that a portion of your stories don't necessarily fit into what Marvel or DC, you know, whoever may be, may fit into what they view as canon to their overall storyline? And maybe you very, don't care, very, but very possibly, very probably. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't care so long as they continue to allow me my own corner. Mm-hmm. Uh, where I can use my own versions of the characters of Frank, of Nick Fury. When they stop doing that, well, I'll stop writing the characters. Um, but so far, it seems to be working out pretty well for all concerned. Yeah. yeah. Um, of course, you know, what we haven't really touched on is that I would say the majority of my work, uh, two thirds to three quarters of it, is creator owned or yeah. is actually yep. uh, concerned with characters that myself and the artists have created and with those you have none of these worries none of these concerns at all you can go wherever you want do whatever you want yeah yeah so actually i I was i was going to get to that sure sure but yeah by all means continue with the punisher i mean it's i'm writing or i have a punisher series out at the moment all right and uh it's you know it's a character i love talking about so yeah. I saw it was coming out. I didn't mm. know that it was officially out. Is it officially? I believe out the first one's out. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I th- and I think the second one will be out next week. Okay. What is that? Just just quick. And this is this is, you know, twenty thousand feet above. What does that work schedule look like? Well, to produce a six episode story, because this this is um, this is a six issue miniseries. That's roughly six weeks for me. Okay. And it should take the artist about six months, okay. typically. Okay. In this instance, Goran Parlov was uh, experienced a number of delays, and it took longer. But it took me six weeks, huh. give or take. And of course, it has to be lettered. That takes a couple of days. It has to be colored. That takes three or four days, mm-hmm. I think. On the whole, you can produce work quickly enough that your work has a reasonable immediacy that it, it maintains a relevance. Yeah. That whatever it is you're talking about um, still has some relevance to the world. Of course, given that I'm writing a Vietnam story in this instance, that's not such an issue, but you do like your work <laughs> yeah. to come out in a yeah. reasonably timely okay. fashion. Do you, when you're writing, are you also giving the artist direction? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So six frame page, frame, you yeah, know, the, how, how the does script, that? The script looks like a movie or TV script, uh, except that it's broken down into pictures. Yeah. So panel one, uh, five men sit at the back of a oak panel, dimly lit hotel bar. Uh, All are in their 60s, although one has his back to us, nearest us. The barman cleans glasses. It is not immediately apparent, but three of the fingers are missing from his right hand. Wow. Then caption, and maybe if there's a caption, you'll have it, and then you'll simply write in the dialogue for each character. Then you go on to the next picture. So wow. it's a script that directs the artist. Uh, it tells him what to draw. That's amazing. So when, whenever I read a comic, and let me pour you some more whiskey. Oh, sure. Um, so this, this, by the way, Thank this, you. Is, um, this is as pure as it gets. Hmm. 
This is 11-year-old MGP bourbon. Mm. So Indiana bourbon bottled in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is us at our most self-indulgent. Oh, good. I like self-indulgence. <laughs> because what we've done with, with our Whiskey Jubilee line, there's, I'm trying to think how many bottles there are, about nine so far. Mm-hmm. But each label has part of a continuing story. Mm. Each label is its own panel within a comic book mm-hmm. and is telling you the story initially of of this guy here. Okay. Sorry, he's just known as the hero. And in the first label, he's, he's hanging out, he's on a brownstone in New York, and he's drinking a glass of bourbon by himself. Uh-huh. Label number two, completely different release. He meets her. Gotcha. Her name is Chaya. Right. And they're sitting at a table... And if you look closely on the table, they're enjoying the bottle from the previous year. So it's that, that label with him on it, and they're enjoying that whiskey. Mm-hmm. And then in label three, she's coming toward him with the two bottles in hand, and he's got you know, a diamond ring behind his back. He's going to ask her to marry her. And, and so Anyway, so their story is continuing, and this is us being really self-indulgent. That's, that's me. Oh, look, there you are. Uh, yeah. Who did <laughs> the art? So my friend Moana McAuliffe, uh-huh. she's as much a comic dork as I am, and she's, uh, nice she's done every label. And then Jason is on the side, and we're interviewing them for our podcast, One Nation Under Whiskey. Very nice. Yeah. <laughs> when I'm reading comics, the part that, that gets me beyond the story, beyond the art, cheers again. Cheers again. Is what's not being said or shown. Hmm. In between, mm. and you can say that about every comic that that mm. you're. Isn't that a nice, nice little bourbon? That is quite delicious. Yeah, yeah we're really happy with this one. Yeah, so yeah, um, you should be. <laughs> cheers, man. So I'm just curious when you're when you're writing. Do you think about that? Do you think about those moments in between, or how people may read in between that if they ever do? Subconsciously, instinctively, uh, all the particulars of the form I see as tools that you can use to tell the story. The space between the panels, uh, turning a page, uh, punctuation, the Mm. pauses in a sentence depending on whether you use a hyphen or a semicolon or a colon or a period or a comma. These are things that I think about all the time. A lot of it is, is getting the reader to do the work for you. Hmm. In that's interesting. Throwing little hints out there that will, I suppose, trigger his or her perception the way you want it to be triggered, uh, so that they pause for thought, so that they rush ahead, so that they, uh, so that they can't wait to see what happens next, so yeah. that they're left wondering. Yeah, it, it's one of those those who can do mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. It's sometimes hard to describe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, I was working on a story just before I came here, and I was actually uh, having one of those little dilemmas: Do I put this panel at the end of a page or at the start of the next one? Do I want oh, to okay. interrupt or do I want it to just flow in? Uh, do I want do I want the scene to continue or just or just end and then restart? Uh, these are all things I, I sort of think about every day, and yet, as I say, it's. It's instinctive at this point. I've been doing it for almost 30 years. So that wow. yeah. y- you're not so much thinking about it most of the time as just letting it happen. Okay. 
Yeah, but that's true of you know anyone who's been doing anything they're good at for any length of time. Yeah, sure. That's an interesting way of putting it, though, that, you, that you're using that as punctuation. As it's more that punctuation is yet another tool with, which, yet another with tool. which to tell the story. But, but but I would even say that the turning of a page is a comma, right? Or is you know the that next thought. Sure, and you can um, you can use that uh, in your favor too. Um, you can set people up for a fall, for a shock. Mm. Uh, everyone knows that um, the odd-numbered pages go on a right-hander. Mm -hmm. So therefore, if you're writing an even-numbered page, it'll go on a left-hander, which means that the person will be turning over and seeing... Well, what will they be seeing? That's up to right, you, but right, you can right, right. you can definitely throw them for a curve with that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So so with your um, with your creator owned, and, mm -hmm. I, and I so that that's an industry term, creator owned. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's something that came in in the late eighties. People talked about creators' rights. Yeah. Uh, uh, creator owned work and yeah. so on. It was just to get across the idea that. Um, you had a right to to own what you yourself came up with, what okay. you and the artist came up with. Yeah. Uh, and companies like Marvel and DC, because of the work of people like Frank Miller and Hard Chaykin and Neil Adams in the, in the early 80s, were forced to acknowledge that unless they started to allow people a measure of participation yeah. and ownership, uh, those people would take their, their next property huh elsewhere well it sounds like the birth of image right that's what one of the things it eventually led to yeah 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 it's an interesting term creator owned and when i again that connection to whiskey when you talk about a, a distillery releasing a bottle it's called an ob or an owner's bottling mm -hmm. and <coughs> ib independent bottling mm -hmm. right so again it's that sort of you know, me straining to make a connection between whiskey and comics. Well, when you think about it, if you're talking about um, a distillery who come to you or you go to them mm -hmm. uh, and you arrange to bottle some of their whiskey um, yeah. as your own release, that is, that's an arrangement between two equals. Mm. Um in comics, it never used to be like that. Whatever happened to a character that someone had created was totally beyond their control. Wow. Uh, and to an extent, that is still largely true. Um, the characters that form the backbone uh, of Marvel and the backbone of DC, uh, Thor, Hulk, Spider-Man, X-Men, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, are still company-owned. And even if those creators are still alive, they have no say in what happens to them whatsoever. Mm. On the other hand, if you come up with something from scratch, it is up to you what happens to it. Mm -hmm. um, for instance, I did a horror series called Crossed. I was going to ask about right. Crossed. Yeah. Came up with that about 10 years ago. Uh, and two or three years ago, to my immense pride uh, and joy, uh, Alan Moore, who's mm -hmm. really the reason... I got into comics in the first oh, place. Interesting. Asked if he could write a cross series. 
which wow. means everything. That's but, gotta be an honor. Sure. But when very much so. But when he asked me that, um, in terms of in terms of the ownership of the character, it was we we approached that as equals. Um, mm-hmm. I was able to say yes without any other consideration whatsoever, and Alan did the work the same way. There, w- no one was being forced into anything, okay. and no one, uh, no, because the ca- the the actual story crossed was created by myself and Jason Burroughs. We were both perfectly happy with this, so we weren't sitting on the sidelines hissing and spitting, watching someone exploit yeah. what we'd yeah. done. Yeah, sure. It was an arrangement between equals, which which most of us think is the way it should really be yeah mm. that seems right yeah so that's like you approaching the sure, distiller them sure, approaching sure, sure. you did did it did you have the same feeling when you started when you took over for um hellblazer because that was an alan moore yes it was um by that stage um i actually took over the book hellblazer um, from a, a writer called Jamie Delano, oh, okay. uh, who was a friend of Alan's at the time. And um, when Alan finished writing Constantine in Swamp Thing, where he and Steve Bissett yeah. and John Tuttleman had yeah. created the character, and DC said, we would like to put him in a solo book, Alan was able to say, well, I'm not interested. I have other things I want to do, but I see the potential. Why don't you talk to my pal Jamie? Yeah. So that that was somewhere where, because he was still, I think, on semi-reasonable terms with DC, Alan was able to exert a measure of control. That's an exceptional circumstance, really. That's largely because of the respect they had for him at that yeah, point, yeah. Uh, which they no longer do. Um, mm. However, Jamie was able to, to uh, begin as the writer of Hellblazer, and when I took over... He had already been writing it for, gosh, three and a half years, something like that. Oh, so okay. that was a slightly, that was a rather okay. different circumstance. Okay, okay. I, had my, yeah. I had my timelines wrong there. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're already talking about, gosh, I think Hellblazer launched in 1987. And, right. And Alan had come up with the character in Swamp Thing two or three years before that. And you took over in 93. 93? I believe I kicked off in 91. Oh, 91? Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm thinking of there was a Hellblazer special that was in 93. Hellblazer special number one. That might be me, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. That, that was. It was you and, and, and Steve Dillon. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Yep, yeah. yep, yep, yep. Um, yeah, this is me going back in time. Wow. Yeah, that's um, pretty old stuff. Uh, so, so with your, with now your creator-owned stories and mm-hmm. characters, um, if you wouldn't, can we talk about Preacher for a little bit? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, this was this was a. So I was first introduced to you through Hellblazer, and right. it was after you had stopped writing Hellblazer. Okay, so I finished off in about ninety-four. 94 and I probably got into Hellblazer sometime around 96 97. Okay. I think I I came back and did a short story mm-hmm. around about that time it was right before Warren Ellis began his year on the oh, book. Oh, right. Okay. But I my actual run would have been 91 to 94. Okay. 
And then after that, was it in 95 you started Preacher? That's right, yeah. Yeah. So here's, here's a story that from beginning to end has, as Jeff Lebowski would like to say, has a lot of ins and outs and what have yous. I mean, it's, there's, it's so incredibly dense, but so incredibly approachable. It just, it all makes sense. Everything makes sense. One wacky thing hap- happening after the other, you say, nope, it completely makes sense mm-hmm. in this world. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm curious, first off, I'm curious where the idea came from or sprang from. And, 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 then, and then this also gets to sort of process of, of writing. You know, did, did you have an end in mind? Like, mm-hmm. hey, how, are you, how, how did you come up with the story and how did you approach writing it? And was there an end in mind? Uh, I should begin by saying that the accessibility of Preacher is due to Steve Dillon. Yeah. Uh, it was his down-to-earth storytelling yeah. that made that book work. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, it helped that he was, he was able to handle uh, 66 monthly issues. Most <laughs> artists couldn't, and we would have had to have fill-ins. Wow. We might have had to have revolving teams. Yeah. And I think that would have ruined the book because what you've talked about, the, no matter how crazy it got, different artists might not have been able to, to keep the consistency there. Yeah. Steve could. Yeah, yeah. It was, it's also his ability to, to ground the story, to keep it very down to earth, to keep the characters believable no matter how weird and wild they yeah. look. Yeah, sure. To create a logical world. Um, at least a logical backdrop where people trudge home from work, where they prop up the bar, where they've got cigarettes stuck in their mouth and mm, beers in their mm-hmm, hands, mm-hmm. where you look at them and you think, yeah, I, I know these people. It gives you a believable world that acts as a backdrop for the madness to happen against. Yeah. yeah. So all credit to Steve for that. Yeah. As to where it came from, um, it was no one thing. I was beginning to wind down my run on Hellblazer around about 93. I knew I had about a year to go and I told DC that. And the editor, my, my friend Stuart Moore, uh, said that he'd spoken to the, the powers that be and they said that they really liked what Steve and I were doing on Hellblazer and they would take whatever we were going to do next. Wow. Whatever we would pitch them as our creator-owned That's book. That's great. Uh, so I began to sort of pull ideas together it was no one thing it happened slowly bit by bit the title preacher took a long time Hmm. to appear um initially i think jesse custer was simply a regular guy from nowhere Mm. and cassidy was the southern boy and then as I, huh. as I got further into it, I realized just how American this story had to be. Yeah. Um, and I realized that Jesse was the Southern boy and Cassidy was a different kind of American. He was the immigrant. Yeah. He was the guy who'd come from somewhere else, sought refuge, been accepted sure, and sure, fallen sure, sure. in love with the place. Yeah. Um, and that was a very important aspect of the American story that I realized I wanted to tell. Um, after that, I think I realized pretty early on that it was a Western and it needed a gunfighter, and that was where the Saint of Killers came from. 
I'm talking about these things one at a time just so you can see how <laughs> how much of an uneven bits and pieces kind of a yeah. process it was. Yeah. Um, once I began writing it, I think I was about halfway through the second year when I realized where it was going and how it was going to end. And that doesn't mean that there was, I didn't leave myself plenty of gaps to fill in along the way. Sure. But I understood where it was going. Okay. Mm. I and hope that's a half decent answer because it's <laughs> 20 years plus at this point. But right. And, and yeah. so that's, that's the crazy thing, though. I mean, this is something that right now it, for you, and I wonder how you, mentally if this is strange for you. Mm. Right now, what's ancient history for you has become a huge part of pop culture right now mm-hmm. because of because of the series that's taken off. People people are loving it. Um, it I think it's such a AMC is a perfect station mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. it. They they allow things that I don't think some other stations might uh, or networks might. With this being a creation that's now. Tw- started 22 years ago yeah i mean what's that like for you as you know is it strange like it's a rehash are you excited that it's well i I recognize it uh i recognize it very much as a question of circumstance Mm. Uh, i mean there have been that this is no great revelation there have been innumerate attempts to get preacher going as a movie or a tv show and then a movie and not a tv show I over the years i would go to imdb all the time <laughs> and just start like okay is there going to be movies are going yeah yes so, so i recognize it really as a matter of circumstance so no it doesn't strike me as anything odd um i uh it it's nice it means a whole new audience is discovering the book Mm-hmm. Uh, as I'm finding doing the signings and so on that we talked about earlier. Uh, so that's good. I, I mean, I'll be honest with you, it's, it's a lovely way for Steve's work to live on. That's a, It really is. That's, that's a good way to put it. And it, just for those people who are listening right now who, who may not know Steve Dillon, who was an uh, artistic uh, partner with, with Garth for many, many years past, just last year, right? Uh, that's right. It was... Um, Gosh, it was a year ago on Sunday. He he actually died here in New York. He one of the one of the things about uh, his death was it really brought home to everyone, his family, his friends, all of us, just how beloved he was of so many people right mm-hmm. around the mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. Um, just as as I'm terribly fond of preacher, I think of it as the first thing I did that I'm really proud of. Yeah. Um, Steve was also very fond of it. Now he'd been right, sorry, he'd been drawing for longer than I'd been writing at the, at the point that we did it, but we were always both very, very fond of it. And so if anyone ever asks, you know, do you get tired of hearing about preacher? No, we, neither of us ever did because mm-hmm. we, we were both very pleased with it and proud of yeah, it and had sure. no problems with it. it sure, sure. If it's the one that we should be known for, that is that was always absolutely fine be, by yeah. us. Yeah. Um, uh, and so that that's what I mean when I say that it, it's a nice way for Steve to be remembered. Sure, yeah. sure. That's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With, with its... And I'm just curious. It's it's translation to the small screen. Mm-hmm. 
Now this now this is the opposite end. Again, if we're to if we're to bring it back to the idea of whiskey, mm-hmm. now you're the distiller, <laughs> and you know Seth Rogen and Evan uh, Goldberg. Goldberg, thank yeah. you. See, I didn't want to do the typical Jewish Jewish guy Goldberg, right? <laughs> yeah, um, brain fart moment there for a second. But so now you have two guys who are basically retelling your story mm-hmm. while trying to stay true to the overall you know arc of everything and and so obviously the the show is i wouldn't say it's very different from the comic but it is a bit of a departure and mm-hmm. some timelines mm-hmm. are changing and, and things like that as a creator how does that sit with you does that excite you does that make you nervous does that i think you you i I realized from the beginning and i was actually the one that said to them you are gonna have to change it oh right is that um they are going to have so much more space because if they were to simply film what was there not that they could because there's stuff in there that you could never put on tv (laughs) no but if they were simply to to go with what was there, it would be finished inside two years, and okay. they want this to go much further than that. So they have yeah. much more room to maneuver. Mm-hmm. They have much more space. What I love about the show, I think, is that they got the casting absolutely right. Yeah, spot on. Yeah. Um, I'm so pleased when I see Dominic Cooper, when I see Ruth Negga, Joe Gilgan, Graham McTavish, Pip mm-hmm. Torrens. Yeah. I think they absolutely nailed it yeah. in terms of casting. Uh, nice bunch of people too, which are is they? a bonus. Yeah. But but they are just right for those characters. Yeah. Uh, in that regard, I just couldn't be happier. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I was... Uh, before the show had come out, I was a bit apprehensive because... Because of Ru- Ruth Nega. Mm-hmm. Right and but she's she's perfect for the character. She is. Uh, she, I. It, it's it's interesting. It, you know, second season just ended, and my wife my wife who has no interest in graphic novels whatsoever has been watching this with great interest mm-hmm. um, beside me. And uh, you know, as I'm thinking about all of the characters and, and the cast and. Mm-hmm. How, I I've formed two favorites, and that is Ruth, right, mm-hmm. playing Tulip, and who, I forget his name. The guy playing Air Star, uh, Pip Torrens. Oh my gosh! Yeah, holy crap! Like that was just <laughs> spot. Yeah, on. Uh, and I've met Pip and, and spoken to him, and yeah, he's yeah. a very nice chap. He is really he, yeah. is. And yet, when you're talking to him. You can't help but see it. You you can't help but see Star in front of you because he looks uncannily like them. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's 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 great. And mm. you know, it was as I'm watching it, I'm you know, I'm telling telling to my wife her name's Haida, I'm saying you know, you know, this this is a little different, but I love what's going on here, so on and so forth. And then when Air Star comes on said, Holy crap, that just nailed it perfectly mm. it was exactly what i wanted to see i thought it yep. was a great a great translation mm. yeah, it's bad tempered 
slightly frustrated, uh, dismissive yeah. Yeah. humanity or ants. Yeah. Um, the Boys. Right. You know, this was a comic, and I apologize because I, I, I don't know this, uh, the characters of this world inside out like mm. I should, but it was quite obvious this was you taking massive punches at superheroes. Yes. Right? It's, it, it's that mystical world that has no footing in what is our real world. There's a touch of um, there's a touch of if you can't beat them, join them about it. Yeah. But it is ultimately my take on superheroes. But I suppose I began by thinking, what would their function be mm. if they existed in our world, in the real world? If you had not characters like the Punisher, who's just a guy with a gun, but actual superhuman, superpowered beings, yeah, what would they be like, and what would their be their function? Well. What would they be like? They'd be a mixture of rock stars and politicians. Mm. They'd have the glamour of rock stars, uh, but they'd have the actual effect on our world of politicians. And of course, they'd have the bad behavior of both. The there excess, were a-holes. Yes, Total a-holes. The, the gruesome, excessive, yeah. uh, money-fueled behavior of both. Yeah. Um, and what would what would be... What would be their function? What would be their place? Well, they'd be owned because, of course, mm. anything that has that much effect on the world is going to be owned, and it's going to be owned by corporations. Yeah. And that was my way in, really. That was what I really wanted to write about, corporate power, uh, corporate abuses. Um, the Boys was very much, is very much a book of its time, um, it and Crossed, I think, were my two real responses to the Bush era. Uh, mm. The Boys is about corruption. Crossed is about abandonment. Yeah. That's it in yeah. a couple of nutshells. It's really good, yeah. Um, but The Boys is about that, that nasty feeling that you had at the time where America just suddenly didn't seem quite so much like America mm. where the Bush regime's abuses were not being opposed, not even by the media. At least the media are having a pop at Trump. Yeah. But at the time they fell into line behind what yeah, Bush wanted did. to do yeah. to quite a disgraceful degree. Um, you know, who knows, perhaps one is a product of the other. We won't be caught twice. Um, but it felt, and I was living here at the time, and it felt like things were sliding in a grim direction, and The Boys was largely a response to that. Okay. Uh, and, of course, superheroes were a, a, a great way of looking at corruption and abuse. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. Hmm. Do, you, do you ever foresee that being translated to a screen like... Preacher uh, or Constantine or... As always, there's interest, yeah. but I never believe these things until yeah. I'm sitting there with the check in my hand watching the first episode. <laughs> um, actually, after I've cashed the check. We were talking earlier about how there had been so many attempts to make Preacher, and I learned not to get excited for mm -hmm. that very reason, mm -hmm. because it became obvious, or it seemed obvious, that it couldn't be done, that many yeah. talented people... 
uh, at some very creative places, had attempted to do it and failed. Yeah. And Steve and I, frankly, got into the habit of um, having our agent sell the option every couple of years and then renew it. Oh, okay. And we got probably quite cynical about it, and then it actually happened. Um, S- yeah. So the boys, again, I'll believe it when I see it. So back back to preacher again sure. with that sort of start stop. Is it going to happen? Oh, it's going to happen. No, it's not mm-hmm. going to happen. Was there something about Seth and Evan and their approach to it that that got you to say, "Oh, these guys may have something here. They can." I think it was more their stature that allowed them to do it. Oh, right. Okay. And the the other aspect that played a very important part was the time was right mm. for years we had been told again and again that so many people love it but the guys at the top the guys who can pull the trigger on things didn't get it at all yeah there was one instance at one company where our our sole champion who was quite uh quite senior had one of those weekends in Vegas that didn't stay in Vegas. I can't go into any more detail than that, but he was then fired uh, for appalling behavior. I mean, just sickening behavior. Uh, So, of course, his career has gone on to thrive in the the TV (laughs) industry. But at the time, (laughs) at the time, he was fired. And that was our, that was Preacher's one champion at that company. Okay. Uh, out on the street, yeah. And preacher was finished at that particular okay. company. Um, <laughs> as Steve said at the time, God, I hope that's not our target audience. <laughs> but um, that, but that's an example, an extreme example of what I mean. Certain people would get it, many others wouldn't. Yeah. And then time goes by, almost yeah. twenty years go by, and all of a sudden the people who were sort of middle management or lower, who loved it but couldn't get their bosses to pull the trigger on it suddenly find themselves senior mm. enough to make it happen and yeah. I think a combination of uh, Seth Rogen's stature and the time being right was what allowed Preacher to go ahead okay yeah I had some people who sent in some questions sure sure a friend of mine uh, Robert Haynes Peterson he's a writer he's he knows Amanda as well so you may have bumped into him okay very Maybe possibly not. yeah um, but it was interesting, you know, he and I, anytime we've ever met, it's talking about drinks or, you know, what have you. Mm-hmm. And then for about, I want to say almost a year straight, Jesse Custer was his Facebook profile picture. <laughs> right. Okay. I'm like, okay, he's in the know. This is good. And so I reached out to a few people uh, to see if they had any questions. And actually, before I talk about this, I need oh, to pour yeah, you right. the... The funky monkey. So, have you have you heard of a, a type of whiskey called American Light whiskey? American Light? Yes. No, I have not. So, American Light whiskey was created. Um, here, you can take a look at the oh, label sure. there. Um, it was created back in the uh, sometime around the seventies. 
as bourbon started to decline in the late 60s -hmm. and vodkas and gin started becoming the drink of choice, Mm -hmm. um, you had bourbon producers that were sitting on their hands saying, what the fuck are we going to do? No one's drinking our stuff. Mm -hmm. So a couple great things happened. First and foremost, they sat on a lot of stuff and some of the regular whiskeys because they needed to sell stock. You know, you'd have some juice that would say eight years old, and there's probably 12, 14, 16-year-old whiskey in there. You know, just older whiskeys getting released. Mm -hmm. Um, So people who stuck with bourbon got to enjoy older bourbons, still at a very good price. Uh, But they needed to compete somehow with with the vodka world, with the with a spirit that was easily mixable. So they came out with a new... Um, is this empty? Uh, yes, I believe yeah. it is, yeah. Um, now, just so you know, this is not your everyday light whiskey. Okay. I'll go into why it's a funky monkey. So they came out with this, um, and this is 65.8% alcohol, just so you okay, know. Okay, I'll be ready for that. Um, so they came out with a spirit they called light whiskey. Uh, for bourbon to be bourbon... You you have predominantly corn in the mash bill. Uh, you fill the casks somewhere around 60-65% alcohol. I don't know the exact number, but those casks need to be new charred oak. Mm-hmm. Okay? For light whiskey, they would distill... Oh, and the distillation part was key. They would distill to around, you know, somewhere in the 60s, right? ABV and then put that distillate in, into oak. To produce light whiskey, they would use the similar bourbon mash bill, but they would distill between, they take the alcohol up to between 80 and 94.5% alcohol, so just shy of neutral grain spirits, mm-hmm. to basically strip out a lot of the flavor because, again, they needed something that could be um, mixed in a cocktail, not something that can be enjo- enjoyed on its own. Mm-hmm. So they would generally take the distillate up in the stills up to around 80% alcohol, sometimes higher, up to 94.5. And then they would take that whiskey uh, or that distillate and put it into used oak casks. So basically ex-bourbon casks. Mm-hmm. And then mature that for a couple of years. And that be- basically became Seagram's. Mm-hmm. Seagram's is light whiskey. So if you've ever had a seven and seven, that's okay, right. know, light whiskey with seven up. All right. So that took off. It was pretty, you know, a good product. It didn't taste great, but it sold well. Um, a few years ago, there were a few um, companies like High West. I'm sure you've heard of oh, High yeah, West. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. And a few others who found just piles of these, of these light whiskeys. Uh, at MGP, who used to make the the vast majority of them, you know, MGP used to be called the old Seagram's plant, mm-hmm. and then it was LDI, Lawrenceburg Distillers, Indiana, and then MGP, which is now Midwest Grain Products. So, High West found piles of this. Other people found piles of light whiskey, and started blending it into their own stuff. So we had gotten some light whiskey. Now this, now there's a great little story on here. So, we found some light whiskey. It was eight years old at the time. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, we did a special um, beer for Whiskey Jubilee 
the I think the year that you were there, you may have had the Whiskey Jubilee. I don't know if you had the beer there, but we had a festival beer there. Okay. I don't think I did. Okay. But my recollections aren't that reliable. Yeah, I, I so I remember. Yeah. yeah. Um so so what we did we had taken a, a rye cask that was used to make to help make a different Jubilee bottling. And we took that cask and we filled it with IPA from Schmaltz Brewery. And that was their IPA with fresh mustard seeds. And we matured that beer in cask for about eight weeks, six, eight weeks. And that was the Jubilee beer bottling. Then we took some of the light whiskey and put that into that X rye slash X IPA cask. So the, gosh. So this says, this light whiskey was extra matured in a cask that previously held six-year-old MGP rye whiskey, which was part of the second Whiskey Jubilee Festival bottling, which was then used to mature Schmaltz Hop Mana IPA for the first collaboration beer for Whiskey Jubilee New York City 2015. And then we say, and I think I got this from the Joker, because I could have sworn he said this, it's like a paradox, paradox wrapped in a conundrum. I think the Joker said that at one time. I it could be sounds like sounds more like what Churchill said about Russia. Oh right, uh, which is maybe where whoever ha- it was had the Joker say that got oh, it. Okay. But it's something like a, a puzzle wrapped in an enigma, wrapped yeah. in a something yeah, like exactly. that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So this is our funky monkey. All I, right. I guarantee, or at least I hope, you've never had a whiskey like this before. In your life. Hmm. So you're going to get, hopefully, hopefully you're going to get some like orange gumdrop spice kind of going on. Hmm. Sort of piney, hoppy, citrusy thing. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. That's quite dangerous. You could drink a lot of that. <laughs> so hmm. this, this in the, in this, in the whiskey, in the ongoing Whiskey Jubilee story. After our hero and Chaya got engaged, he decided to go off to Chicago. And that was when we launched our first Whiskey Jubilee Chicago Festival. Mm-hmm. And then the following year, she went off. So, like, same, same label, but where this says New York City to, you know, NYC to CHI. Mm-hmm. Hers <clears throat> says NYC to SEA. She went to Seattle. That was her first Seattle Whiskey Jubilee Festival bottling. Mm-hmm. So it's this story of okay, we've been engaged, but now we're going to we're going to live our life a little bit before we settle down mm-hmm. and have kids. Anyway. Anyway. All right. No, this is good stuff. Good. I'm glad you. I I didn't know if you'd like it, but I I'd hoped you might. <laughs> so this is uh, I'm going to read this word for word. He, he's a much better writer than I am a speaker. <clears throat> so again, this is from Robert Haynes Peterson. Okay. And he says, people tend to pick up on mainstream comics uh, in the 90s. Giant capes, giant hair, lots of big visuals. But it's also the era that art- artists like you, Moore, and Miller uh, were going dark and deeper than perhaps has ever been done in comics, certainly post-code, that were independent but not underground. 
what did it feel like to have the sort of freedom to go bigger on the gore, the sex, the violence? Was it liberating? Was it intimidating? Was there a sense that the stories had to be better to kind of explain the extreme imagery? Hmm. Uh, well, first of all, I should say independent, but not underground. That is a great way of putting it yeah. because that is where so many of us find ourselves. Um, I should also say that um, I'm, I'm guessing he's talking about Alan Moore and Frank Miller. Yes. They had preceded me by five to ten years. Um, they sure. came up in the, the early to mid 80s mm-hmm. and I came along at the very end of the 80s. Um, I'm, I'm almost a couple of generations after them because... Uh, Immediately following those guys, you have uh, Pete Milligan, Neil Gaiman, Grant Morrison, yeah, Jamie sure, Delano. Sure, sure. Um, but to, to get down to what he was what he was talking about, um, myself and Mark Miller and Warren Ellis, I think we got into the business at the time when we we saw what people like Alan and Frank were doing in terms of content, but also in terms of ownership and creators Mm. rights as we talked about earlier and we simply believed this is the way that things should be there was a natural progression uh people like alan and frank and and others on the the british and also the american side of things had kicked down those particular doors and there would be no going back and we proceeded under that Mm. particular assumption and there were still a few more doors to be kicked down, but we took care of them one <laughs> at a time. And I yeah. think we've been reaping the benefits ever since. We've just continued to do more in that vein. I think it was, was the, yes, it was the people who, who came after us who maybe found it a bit tougher where the companies began to clamp down a little bit mm. where Marvel and DC began to rein people in where the good contracts weren't available mm. uh, the way they had been for for myself and Mark and Warren in the early 90s um, page rates were cut uh, this has proceeded right up to uh, or sorry continued right up to the present day where um, writers and artists today the, the younger uh, writers and artists who've gotten into the industry since us um, really have, I think, have found themselves struggling a bit more than we did. We were very lucky to reap the benefits of the tremendous work on all fronts um, that our predecessors had done in the 80s. Yeah. Um, nowadays, uh, writers and artists find themselves... I think being paid less under better, uh, under worse deals, up against stiffer competition, and unable to enjoy the benefits in the way that we had. Interesting. Okay. Uh, this is maybe in- indicative of something bigger. This is maybe the curse of the millennials as a whole, yeah. where. Um, because their predecessors didn't handle things as well as they might or didn't see certain challenges coming in the way that they might have, they, the millennials, are going to have things that bit tougher. Okay. Um, it surprised me a little bit to see things turn out the way they have. Uh, on the one hand, it's nice for people, once they've established themselves, to go to Image and have a shot at... Uh, at, at getting a big book in mm. which they 
truly enjoy the, the, the benefits of their own creativity. Um, but it's that bit harder for them to get there, yeah. I think. Um, it, it's nice. Image is nice if you hit the jackpot. But if you don't, it's the law of diminishing returns. Yeah, and yeah. meanwhile, Marvel and DC are waiting for you with their not very good page rates and their not very good deals. Okay. I suppose, like many people of my generation, I expected... I thought I was part of a progression, whereas it seems as if, in fact, uh, I was actually part of a left turn huh. that hasn't worked out for as many people as I thought it would. Interesting. But continues to work out for you. Yes, it does. And, 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 and others that either... At the moment, I mean, Mark Miller, obviously, is a fantastic success. Sure. Um, Warren Ellis and myself still do well. We can still broadly speaking go where we want and do what we want yeah um long may that continue uh for for the younger generation though i i almost think it's more of a crapshoot interesting uh establish a reputation nail that image book uh take your audience from your mainstream work with you to your image work that's mm. the theory works out for a number of people but not everyone by any means vertigo s still seems to be sort of you know that the, the off for for yeah. those that may not know you know uh sort of an offshoot of the the dc universe yes it was the it was the offshoot of dc that allowed myself and the others of my generation to own what we'd created uh you cannot get the deals that we had you in those days okay. at, D at vertigo anymore wow. you just can't okay. it is not what it was okay yeah yeah that's interesting um, another, so there were a couple other questions. Mm. Um, so my good friend Ian Allen, who actually is the, uh, distillery visitor center manager at Glen Murray. Ah. Uh, we, we connect on so many levels, whether it's just music or being dorks in general. He says, Alan Moore famously denounces all the work that he's done that has been made into movies. Do you have any of the same feelings? Do you do you feel well? The only thing I've done that's really been been filmed is Preacher. Apart from that, little bits and pieces of what I did on Hellblazer, yeah, were used for the Constantine movie. Yeah, I watched it and I couldn't recognize anything of mine. Although that might just have been yeah. because I was struggling to stay awake. Yeah. Um, Little bits of what I did on The Punisher were used in a couple of movies. Okay. The Tom Jane one and yeah. the uh, Ray Stevenson one. Yeah. Uh, two good actors wasted there, I'll tell you. Mm. Um, but I don't really regard that as my work being filmed. Okay. So it really comes down to Preacher. And uh, I guess the short version is, no, I am not about to denounce Preacher anytime soon. <laughs> okay. yeah. Alan, on the other hand... Um, yeah, it's entirely up to him what he does. I don't think much of the films of V for Vendetta or Watchmen. Yeah. I don't think they come anywhere near to no, catching yeah. Yeah. those comics. Um, perhaps the forthcoming Watchmen TV show will do a better job. Apart from anything else, I think you need room to maneuver with that story. I think you need more than that's why two TV or three hours. may be the might be the outlet. Yeah. Might be, yeah. 
In that same vein, Shane Helmick asked, who do I have to kill to get a dog welder TV series? (laughs) (laughs) Probably... uh... Probably all right-thinking people who have ever gotten anywhere near it. I I don't know. I mean, Hitman, uh, in which Dog Welder was introduced, is, of course, owned by DC. Um, I've been told that people are looking at it. Really? But only in that every single thing DC owned has been looked at at some point. You know, they've gone through the entire back catalog beginning in 1930, whatever it was, and gone, yes, yes, no, 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 yes, yes, no, no, possibly. Um, Hitman would be an incredibly difficult story to put on the screen, and Dog Welder would, would of course, be one of those difficulties. So Mm. for the minute, he'll have to... He'll have to exist only in your dreams, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, you know, again, you, you've done so many things, much of which, you know, I have to apologize. I'm just not familiar with it all. No, it's 30 years worth of work. And, There's right? a lot of stuff there. And, and I would like to forget a good third of it. <laughs> all right. So that's, you know, 66.666%. Right? You're very proud of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So really quickly before we leave, because Jerry is sure, sure. giving you know um, throwing eyeballs at us, um, what do you have that's coming out? And we touched on it a little bit, mm. but what do you have that's coming out that you're very excited about? And hold on, before you answer that question, no, answer that question, then I'll ask the okay. final question. Yes. What have I got that's coming up? Um, well, let's see. Uh, Punisher started. Very pleased with that. Code Prue is running in the Cinema Purgatorio anthology from Avatar. That's a character I'm very, very fond of. Um, I have One Last Cross series, which is being drawn at the minute. And that's ending crossed? Uh, that's not ending pretty crossed. much. Wow. Okay. It, it will be one of the last cross stories you'll see. Uh, So that's being drawn at the minute. There's a new horror book from Avatar I can't go into much detail on. Uh, There's a new war series I also can't go into much detail on from a new publisher next year, but I'm extremely pleased with that. Um, I'm working with a very good artist on that one, and I think it's going to make a bit of a splash. Um, I have another new horror book that's... I'm only on episode three of, but it's, um, I think it's going to make a bit of an impact itself. And beyond that, um, I have more war series, more action series, more crime series, all gestating, all cooking away inside my Mm. head that will be coming out soon. Okay. Mm. So the boys was a commentary on the Bush era. Right. Do you have commentary on the Trump era? Yeah, I do. That last horror story I mentioned, which, as I say, I'm only on episode three of, is, I think, my response to the Trump era. Um, A a time of hmm, lack of ideology, Mm -hmm. you might say, of the destruction of seeing logical process yeah um it's it's very different to crossed as i say cross was 
born of the Bush era and it was about abandonment and chaos yeah. and the horror of what happens when we're, we're alone against the horde, yeah. as it were. A um, lot of zombie stories around that time, if you mm-hmm. remember. Yeah, of course. Um, just that weird suspicion that when things went wrong, no one would be there for us. Mm-hmm. Um, this one, and I really can't go into detail yet, but it will appear next year, is is a more psychological approach to horror. Okay. It's about bad things that may have been waiting for us all along. Wow. Okay. Okay. Cool. Is as much as I can say about that okay. right now. Well, any mm-hmm. idea on when that may? Uh, be I can printed? tell you that it will come from AfterShock Comics, who published mm-hmm. Jimmy's Bastards and my series last year, Dreaming Eagles, and yep. it will appear. I'm going to take a guess and say sometime in the second half of next year. Wow. Okay, it's too long to wait. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, is there anything that you've been? desperate to work on or a a story that you've wanted to tell whether it's through your own stories characters etc or through you know a a marvel vehicle um i love war stories and war stories are are where i've been able to to tell the stories that matter to me the most um i had a series called battlefields Mm -hmm where I was able to write about the uh, Russian woman pilots of World War II, Mm -hmm. among others. A series called War Story from Avatar Press, where I was able to write about um, the Russian invasion of Eastern Germany in World War II. I was able to write about the Yom Kippur War of 1973. Um, What I would like to do and what I will do one day and, and I think it'll be the most important thing I ever write will be a story about the Battle of Britain mm. uh, which occurred in the skies over uh, southeast England in the summer of 1940 when okay. Europe had gone under America still slept Russia was an unknown quantity and Germany had really no obstacles left mm, mm-hmm. to to dominating Western Europe except one. Okay. Except the British. Uh and their almost suicidal decision to fight on. That's what I really want to do. And wow. that's what I'm gonna do sometime in the next couple of years. Nice. Yeah. Cool. Mm. Thank you so much. Thank you and thanks for all the booze. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> of course. I'm no. glad I was able to enjoy it. I, I was worried I'd get to that sideways point where it's like <laughs> tastes good to me <laughs> yeah well i i tried to um uh, i tried to deal it out in a slow deliberate manner i think you did well okay thank yeah. you <laughs> <laughs> cheers man really yeah, appreciate it and to you cheers mate